Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. My name is Eli. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And today we're talking about the British lichenologist and Antarctic explorer Elka Mackenzie. I'd like to acknowledge the Wandri Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast, and pay respects to their elders past and present. We recognise them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We have some content warnings before we start this episode. This episode will contain discussions of transphobia and misgendering in quotes, as well as brief mentions of wartime bombing, risk of starvation, animal suffering and death, mental health issues, and a suicide attempt. If any of that sounds like something that you don't want to listen to, please feel free to skip this episode and listen to a different one instead. Just in case this episode sounds a little bit different, uh, we wanted to let you know that we are moving house and the room we're recording in is currently stripped bare of everything that is normally in it. So we've done our best to strew some blankets around and hope for the best, but if it sounds a little bit weird, that's why, and it should be sorted out by the next time. I also wanted to talk about our sources. So frankly, we don't know very much about Elka's life. Biographical details about her largely come from obituaries published in various scientific journals after she died. So we have one written by fellow lichenologist George Yano, friend and fellow polar explorer Andrew Taylor, and Elka's previous grad student Vernon Amagian. These are people who knew Elka professionally and to some degree personally, and they seem to be in the broad strokes reliable, but there are various discrepancies between these, such as the names of institutions that Elka worked for, the number of children that she had, uh, her birthday, and so forth. So they're certainly not infallible, and they do seem to skew more towards remembering her professional rather than personal life, as you would expect for the setting in which they're published. We'll have to hear some facts that might be true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the name of this podcast may be misleading. Yeah. <laughs> um, Queerest things some guys heard once. Yes. The best documented period of Elka's life was 1944 to 1946, during which she participated in an Antarctic expedition called Operation Tabarin. That is a fantastic period of time to be in Antarctica. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's why the minions do it. (laughs) Yeah, that is true. I didn't think about that. But I guess Elka McKenzie and the minions were canonically in Antarctica at the same time. Canonically. I'm so excited for us to go to a whole new continent in Queer as Fact. Yeah, this is our first Antarctic episode. It, it might be the last. If there are any other, like, <laughs> you know, gay polar explorers or anything, please let me know because I got so obsessed with Antarctica over the course of this and we may never be able to talk about it again. <laughs> <laughs> to take us back to me still trying to get through our sources, the British Antarctic Survey posted a considerable amount of information about Operation Tabarin for its 75th anniversary in 2019 including photos, diary entries, oral histories, and footage. There have also been several books published about the expedition, most of which are accounts by people who went on the expedition. And most recently, this includes Elka's own first-hand account, originally written in the 1950s, but not published until 2018. Lastly, I wanted to mention that Elka was a transgender woman, and that all of these sources, many of which were written after she came out, misgender her. 
The only source that does not is a 2020 article by Sabrina Imbler called The Unsung Heroine of Lycanology, which remembers Elka specifically as a trans woman. Now, there's no need to have a pronoun discussion at the beginning of this episode. Elka was a woman. We're using she, her pronouns. But I just wanted to note that we'll return to how these sources discussed her gender a little bit at the end. Elka was born in Clapham, London on the 10th of September, 1911. As a child, her family moved to Scotland, where she received her education, graduating from Edinburgh University in 1933 with a Bachelor of Science and honours in botany. She then spent two years researching botany in Germany on a scholarship. In 1935, Elka was hired as assistant keeper in the Department of Botany in the British Museum, and in 1942, she received a Doctor of Science from Edinburgh University. We're zooming through her life so yep. fast. <laughs> yeah. In 1936, Elka married Myla Elvira Labeo. Their first son was born during the Blitz in London in 1940, and they ultimately had three children, Eric, Frank, and Nina. Given that they were such a focus of Elka's life, it would be remiss of me to not speak about lichens briefly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> However, I do want to stress to everyone's surprise, I'm sure, that I am not a botanist of any kind, and my research on this has been restricted essentially to various introductory pages on government websites and the like. <laughs> but I will say the Australian National Botanic Gardens assures me that if you read no more than this page, you will gain a good basic understanding of lichens, so we're all good. Okay. <laughs> Our mum is a biologist and a big yes. fan of lichens, and she listens to every episode of the podcast. She does not. No, she doesn't. She no. only listens to the ones that she thinks look interesting. But yes. she'll think this one looks interesting so look because out because she's yes. a big fan of lichens yes. so if necessary i will put an errata <laughs> pending comment from from sue from sue <laughs> i guess i want to start off i very much essentially didn't know what a lichen was before starting this episode what do you guys know about lichens can you tell me what a lichen is it's like two things working together it's like a fungus and something else that work together to become like a fake plant do you yeah. want to add on to that at all? That's approximately my understanding. Cool. It looks like a plant, but it's fully not a plant. <laughs> so you are fully correct. A lichen is a symbiosis between a fungus and an alga or a cyanobacterium. There are over 20,000 species of lichen known, 3,000 in Australia. Thank you uh, to the Australian National <laughs> Botanic Gardens. <laughs> and they can be very diverse in appearance. So sometimes you see them as a sort of like crust over a rock or something like that. Other times they form more sort of... 3D shapes, I guess, with like tendrils and stuff. Uh, so example, beard moss, uh, contrary to its name, is a lichen. So you said that 3,000 of the 20,000 types in Australia. Do you know how many types are in Antarctica? No. Okay. I think like only like a couple of hundred or something. Uh, but a lot of my impression of things about lichens are probably substantially outdated given that Elka died in the 90s. <laughs> That's yeah. fair. Yeah. I will also say that I was so disappointed when I found out that she wasn't a scientist of werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> I think that every time you say lichenology. Yeah. It's like one of those, you know, like Egyptology kind of books when you're a kid, you expect it to be about wells. Anyway, so lichens form structures and produce chemicals that aren't found in either of its components when they exist separately. It seems to be the case that lichens evolved in response to environmental adversity. So they, you know, developed a buddy system to be able to handle things better. That's adorable. Um, It is adorable. And because of this, they're able to grow in a very diverse range of environments from the rainforest to the desert to underwater in a few cases uh, to polar regions, as will obviously be significant. Elko was interested throughout her career with the genus of Stereocolon. Imbler describes one species, Stereocolon arenarium, resembling, among other things, a fractal cauliflower, a tangle of silly string, a brain coral dusted in snow. 
That was very vivid. Like, I feel like I can imagine this thing. Yeah. I thought that was quite good. Yeah. There are 130 or more species of stereocolon, and they grow as lichens do in a variety of environments, including in Antarctica. Lichens are very difficult to classify, and this genus is especially so. Oh, yeah. So I guess if it's a genus, they're classifying it as like one species, despite the fact that it's actually two things working together. Yes. So they get classified according to like the fungus type. And then it goes from there. Yeah. So as I had said, lichens are very difficult to classify, this genus especially so. Stephen Clayton, the curator emeritus of botany and mycology at the New Brunswick Museum, described this process saying, take all the hardwood trees, such as maples, elms, ashes, and birches, and shrink them down until they were an inch in size, and all you had to differentiate them was distinctions in the shape of the leaves. You can imagine the challenges. (laughs) Wow, that's very uh, evocative. So today researchers can utilise genetic analysis to differentiate between different species of lichen, but Elka relied on the visible tiny distinctions between the 30 years of specimens that she collected and dried. And that is both so metal and so boring. (laughs) (laughs) So she was basically just like collecting lichens and looking at them under a microscope and being like, wow, this is different to the other lichens. She certainly did that, yes. Yeah, okay. There was obviously, like, a lot more to her career than that. Obviously, but, yeah, but yeah, I yes. mean, that's what, like, classifying yeah. them was as a process at that time. Yes, to the best of my understanding. Okay, okay. There's a reason we're not a science podcast. Like, <laughs> I should not have tried to do this. <laughs> Elka was also interested in Antarctic lichen more generally, which, as you might expect, had not been thoroughly studied. Some of her research at the British Museum involved examining collections in Torku, which is in southern Finland, and Paris from uh, previous expeditions to Antarctica. Her PhD thesis, entitled Monograph of the Lichen Genus Placopsis, A Contribution to the Phytogeography of the Southern Hemisphere, dealt with the movements of the southern continents based on her studies of Antarctic lichen flora. So in 1943, Elka was asked to meet with Lieutenant Commander James Marr, a zoologist and polar explorer who had been appointed by the British government, the leader of an expedition to Antarctica called Operation Tabern. So... Is that why he's a lieutenant commander? Was he just a zoologist before that? Or is he also in the military in some way? He does both of these things. Okay. Yes. Okay. He also has a classics degree. Cool. 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 <laughs> yeah. When will I go to Antarctica with my classics degree? I don't have a classics degree. <laughs> <laughs> don't you? Technically not, no. Okay. Technically I have an arts degree with a diploma in Latin. <laughs> Ostensibly the purpose of this operation was to deny enemy raiding vessels the possibility of anchoring in the area and to gather meteorological data that might be useful to allied ships. However. <laughs> so this was one of those things where they like thought of a fake military purpose for their expedition for funding reasons. Uh, no, it also aimed to reestablish control over various Antarctic islands and parts of the Antarctic Peninsula that Argentina disputed British claims to. Okay. Okay. From the beginning of the planning stages, polar expedition veterans were involved who advocated for scientific work, not just political and economic gain. And because of this, the expedition, which was initially 14 people, included civilian scientific experts in various relevant fields, including Elka as a botanist. Cool. Yeah. I would love someone to be like, Eli, I'm sorry, we needed to go to Antarctica, but there is no world where I have any relevant skills for this. And that makes me so sad. I was trying desperately to think of how I could ever get to go to Antarctica. And I thought maybe that they could do some like archaeology there. But then I was like, how do you even do archaeology when the ground's all frozen? 
There may be all just different processes for this. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. The expedition set sail on the 14th of December 1943, and on the 3rd of February 1944, after some stops along the way, they sighted Deception Island, the Antarctic island where they would make their first base. So I guess, like, let's talk about Antarctic geography a little bit. Are you comfortable with what I mean when I say the Antarctic Peninsula? Is that bit that sticks out near South America? Yeah, it is the peninsula. Antarctica is roughly a circle with a sticky out bit pointing at South America. And when most people go to Antarctica, that is where they go. Okay, okay. Cool, cool. And that is where we are going. Is that because that's like the most hospitable to human life part of it? I don't know if that is true or not, but I think it's just the easiest to reach because you have to be at open sea for much less time and the sea is genuinely very dangerous it changes very quickly there are lots of icebergs i would have laughed if you'd made us do antarctic geography quiz (laughs) (laughs) where is antarctica (laughs) yeah is it called deception island because it deceives you you're like oh i've got to antarctica but there's actually more antarctica i don't know why it's called deception (laughs) island so the expedition was tasked with setting up two bases in 1944 one on deception island Uh, I've put here roughly off the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula, and the other at Hope Bay, which is on the peninsula itself. So Deception Island is formed from the caldera of an active volcano surrounded by mountains. What's a caldera? Uh, In bit... Big crater. Big crater, where Sam and Frodo are at the end of Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Okay, cool, cool, cool. Thank you. Yeah. It periodically experiences tremors and is characterized by sulfurous air and steam rising from the beaches, which are covered in volcanic ash. That That sounds pretty sick. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. There had been whaling in the area for some time and a Norwegian whaling station had been built there in 1912. By 1942, this had closed down, but the remnants of the infrastructure of the whaling community remained in the form of abandoned residential buildings and factories, as did a graveyard of huge discarded whale bones. And that's just the craziest thing I've ever heard. This is a location that exists on Earth. Yeah. Yeah, I cannot believe that people simply lived there. Like, yeah. residential buildings were there. Yeah. I looked up once, there's been people who have been born in Antarctica. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, it's crazy. I'm sure that creates some, like, complications. When they landed, they were unsure if they would find it already occupied by Argentinians, but it was abandoned. They found the huts to still be in good condition, and they planned to utilise those for their base. So not only do they find this abandoned Norwegian whaling station with giant bones everywhere, they move in. They're like, yeah, this looks good. This is my bedroom. This is my bedroom. It's crazy to think that they turned up, not only knowing if other people would be there, but obviously like not knowing if the station would be in livable condition or not. Like you're just landing on an island in the middle of nowhere, absolutely freezing, volcanoes spewing ash or whatever. You're like, (laughs) why to build a shelter <laughs> yeah we don't just live in this whale rib cage oh like polar expedition is insane and yeah. people obviously have died doing it yeah. yeah looking through the abandoned buildings elka recorded in her diary that they found quote a great deal of excellent utensils although everything scattered about as if the last occupants had left it in a great hurry oh <laughs> so unnerving elka began her work as a botanist immediately finding one small patch of grass growing in the volcanic ash and taking a specimen very good. So is Elka out at this time? Or is Elka living as a man at this time? I will tell you when Elka comes out. Okay. Yes. Just checking, because we sped through her early life so far. No, no, no. I mean, I would not have omitted from those sparse details about her early life 
Elka comes out as a trans woman. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, good, good, no, good. she is still um, like presenting as a man at this time. Okay. About a week later, on the 11th of February, they sailed for Hope Bay, leaving five men behind on Deception Island. So again, that's five men who have just been left in the creepy abandoned whaling station. (laughs) And that's where they live now. Hope Bay was intended to be their base of operations for research on the Antarctic Peninsula, but poor weather conditions meant that their second base had to instead be established at Port LaCroix on Goodyear Island, a small island a little further down the peninsula. So geography remains fairly meaningless, frankly. Like, everything's just either a random patch of land on this, like, featureless continent, or it's a small island next to it. Okay. Okay, cool. Do they have trees in Antarctica? No. No. Do they have plants in Antarctica? What is Elka here to do? Well, lichens aren't plants. Okay, fair enough. But she she just found some grass. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so they do have plants that don't have trees. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. They don't really even have plants, though, to be clear. Like... They have little bits of scrub. I, I think a scrub is kind of just being a small tree, and I don't think it goes that far. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Like, I think most of the flora in Antarctica is that kind of, like, you know, a coating of lichen over a rock kind of thing. Yeah. A rock that's happened to be exposed over the ice. <laughs> they don't have spiders, I don't think. No, they don't have spiders. I belong here. Yeah, it should be. <laughs> If you can get me on an Antarctic expedition and you're listening to this, I will do anything. Like, I will do any job. I'm not kidding. (laughs) Unlike Deception Island uh, at Port LaCroix, there's no pre-existing buildings. And so the first thing they have to do is build a house to live in. That's crazy. Yep. They had brought materials for a prefabricated hut from England. So they you know, weren't building it quite from scratch, but they also added onto it considerably with just like whatever materials they could find to make a bigger house for themselves. What materials? Whale bones? That's a good question. I, I It's like misc stuff that they brought that they can oh, okay. utilize, but yeah. I actually oh, yeah. don't know what. I guess I, maybe there was stuff at the other base as well. Oh, yeah, yeah probably. This was their base of operations for the first yeah. So I'm just going to give you like an overview of the expedition mm-hmm. so you kind of know like what time frame we're yeah. working with and whatnot. And then I'll go into some stuff in more depth. Look, cool. everything you've told us about this is incredibly cool. In January of 1945, so we've been there for about a year now, the expedition's leader, James Marr, announced plans to again attempt to establish a base at Hope Bay from where surveying and fieldwork could be carried out over 1945. This would involve the redistribution of the crew and Elka ended up being stationed at Hope Bay. In February, with most of the expedition members gathered on Deception Island, Marr announced that he was returning home and giving up command for both physical and mental health reasons. So this is February 1945? Yep. Command was instead given to Andrew Taylor, who was surprised by this and who was handed a lot of official files and paperwork that he did not have the time to read before Ma left the next morning. How did he just leave? Um, he ran very fast. No. Um, <laughs> so fast he just crossed the yeah. sea. Yeah. So although they are cut off from civilization for long periods of time, there are ships coming periodically to bring them supplies and they can communicate by radio so like the doctor who was with them made a report about how like james marr was not well Mm -hmm. um like he was like being monitored as a suicide risk okay and so i think they're like we need to go get him and take him home okay and they can't just come and pick him up you can yeah yeah. like it's you know it's not like easy to do they're not doing it all the time and also like beyond any complicating factors of you're in Antarctica. There is World War II happening. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Uh, for a little bit longer, at least. But yeah, like you can leave. Shortly after, Taylor and the others who were to establish the new base again sailed from Deception Island to Hope Bay. This time they were able to land as planned and they remained at Hope Bay until they were relieved in 1946. Okay. 
So that's kind of an overview of Operation Tavern. So that's kind of two full years in Antarctica. Yeah. Before we talk about some specifics of the expedition, I wanted to talk about Elka's experiences and what her account can tell us about both her as a person, because we haven't really got that much of a sense of her as a person yet. No. And about just the psychological experience of living in Antarctica for two years. I wonder if they took everyone's appendix out back then too. Probably. Because that's something they do now if you're going to a winter in Antarctica, because they won't be able to get someone in if you get appendicitis. Oh they do God. it preemptively. Yeah, because there's that woman who got breast cancer when she was in Antarctica and she was the doctor. Yeah. And she had to do the surgery or talk someone through doing she the surgery She had to talk someone her. through her surgery. I remember reading about that. Because once you're in in winter, they can't get you out. Mm. Just as we keep on track, I am willing to have medical procedures done to me to go to Antarctica. Okay. Just good. in case anyone relevant is listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will give you a kidney. No, um, <laughs> we actually have two accounts of this trip from Elka, which is quite exciting given the scarcity of sources for the rest of her life. Uh, The first is the diary she kept, which is fairly dry and factual. It's currently held by the British Antarctic Survey and excerpts of it are available to read on their website. The other, as I mentioned, was written in the 1950s after the expedition had ended. Mm -hmm. This account reads something like an adventure novel. (laughs) Uh, It records episodes of life on the Antarctic base and the long distance sledging trips that she took part in, often with this very humorous and affected style. She freely admits that it was not reliable, writing at the start of the book, if you belong to that strenuous, rugged school of polar enthusiasts. <laughs> Those are such, like, you know, first half of the 20th century British, like, like adventure novel. <laughs> yeah. yeah, strenuous, rugged. Yeah. yeah. If you belong to that strenuous, rugged school of polar enthusiasts. Would you say you belong to that strenuous, rugged school of polar enthusiasts, Eli? <laughs> Can I read this quote? Yes. <laughs> If you belong to that strenuous, rugged school of polar enthusiasts, whether practical or literary, who regard polar exploration as essentially a high, grim, and humorless calling, placing much emphasis on the deadly seriousness of toil and the gruelling struggle against hardships and cold, then shy away from this book right off for it's not your cup of tea. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's pretty great. No, this is a fun polar expedition. (laughs) Yeah. Look, I mean, I feel like if you try a small group of people in a location for a year to do, like, you know, miscellaneous activities like science, I feel like they are either going to absolutely despise each other or they are going to have fun. Yeah, that's the options. It will be good or awful. Yeah. But an extreme of one of those two things. Some of the incidents she recalls in this book, such as destroying a sledge when she forgot the command to turn the dogs right or falling into a fishing hole in the ice, are not recorded in her diary or in any other account. And this, combined with the humorous spin she puts in them, suggests that they may not be true. Which is fine. It's a bit dubious as a source if you're trying to learn about Operation Tabarin, but it does tell us something about Elka's character. Yeah. 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 Elka's account does contain a few more serious passages of self-reflection. In 1940, before she went to Antarctica, she arrived at the British Museum in South Kensington, now the Natural History Museum, to find that it had been bombed in the night. Oh, wow. Just like as part of the blitz. Yeah, 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 to yeah. Be no, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. You'd just kind of forgotten that was going on. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. She writes that they found the botanical section roofless and burnt out, the herbarium cases open and deluged by the fireman's hoses, the specimens collected with infinite toil over the last 200 years, named and carefully studied by generations of botanists, half burnt and scattered in soggy wads. We suffered a psychological trauma in that moment. 
For Elke, it created an awareness of the fragility of human progress and, as she puts it, a mistrust in the usefulness of scientific effort. Mm. Thus, she recalls one of her reasons for going to Antarctica was, again in her own words, that of recovering or completely discarding faith in science and human progress by the contemplation of untouched nature and the microcosm of civilization represented by a dozen human beings isolated on a frozen continent. Wow. Yeah, so that's pretty heavy. Yeah. So she's kind of got a lot, ignoring the already, like, psychological burden of being in Antarctica. Yeah. She's already got a lot kind of weighing on this in her own life and her own approach to the world as well. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, she's going there and she's like, either this is worthwhile or I will throw out my whole career now. Yeah, it's pretty full on. I mean, having said that, every time I go to work, I'm like, is this the day that I'll throw out my whole career? (laughs) (laughs) So most of this book is not in this tone, but she does sometimes return to this reflective mood. In one passage, she muses on the superstitious feelings that the extreme and seemingly random weather of Antarctica could engender in explorers, and she recalls that the unpredictability of the weather resulted in this constant state of apprehension. She recounts a day when the weather was pretty good, they were doing some work on the house, they were just feeling pretty positive about life, but she comments, even in moments such as these, a small voice inside of each of us was saying, do not be deceived, you were never meant to live here, go hence before the greater wrath is visited upon you. That's so dramatic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what a vibe. It's like a whole continent that's spooky. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I feel like that doesn't suggest I'm psychologically suited to go to Antarctica, so I'd like to scratch that off the record. (laughs) (laughs) I'll delete it, I'll delete it. Elka's book does not give any neat emotional arc or easy answer to her feelings about human frailty and the fragility of human achievement, but she does seem to continue to find meaning in her work. Unlike the Arctic, Antarctica has never been inhabited by people or any other terrestrial mammal, such as a bear. (laughs) For example. For example. I was about to say, but seals, I was like, wait, they're not terrestrial, are they? Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's phrased carefully. Yes. (laughs) As Elka describes it, it is essentially dead, frigid, and aloof from the world of the living. Here we are presented with a picture, and not a very entertaining one, of the whole earth eons hence, when the sun will have lost its splendour and contracted into a dull red ball in the blackness of the firmament, and our planet becomes a whitened sepulchre idling aimlessly through all eternity. How one thrills then when one's fingers extract a tiny tuft of moss or lichen from a crevice in these ice-bound rocks, and hold before one's eyes the proof that something living, something of our own nature, has managed to cling and persist in the face of this outrageous icy onslaught. Wow, yeah. That was pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, this is the whole thing. If she does decide to throw out science, she could just become an author. She did. Yeah, but like she could like continue to pursue that as a career. Yeah, she doesn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. So the expedition, as we see, clearly pushed the group to their physical and mental limits. They faced a lot of extreme difficulties in achieving their goals and also just eking out an existence in this very inhospitable climate. But it doesn't seem that any of them view this as a truly negative experience. They have a clear purpose in the research that they're carrying out. They're able to have this experience that few people ever do. And they certainly have moments of levity. So I'm going to tell you some stuff to kind of illustrate that duality. Mm -hmm. Elka's most difficult experiences on the expedition were on the long sledging trips that they conducted for research purposes and which Elka participated in as the botanist. They began preparing for the first trip while still based at Port LaCroix, so this is the first year in 1944, Mm -hmm. and preparing for this trip was their first major task after building their base. Elka and three others set out in mid-September, and they spent nearly a month in the field. 
they did not yet have any dogs, so the two sledges weighing about 200 kilos each were pulled by hand. Oh, wow. I definitely was picturing this as a sled dog mission. Not yet. So they will get dogs, though. They will get dogs. The terrain that they had to cover with these sledges was very difficult, and they had to sometimes cut steps into the ice, carry the gear up by hand, and then reload the sledges. On one day, one of the sledges suddenly became stuck in the mouth of a crevasse in the ice that they hadn't known was there. One of the men narrowly escaped falling into it, and they had to painstakingly unload the sledge, haul the sledge out, and then reload it. Later on that same day, <laughs> terrain herded them uh, close in towards a mountain range, closer than they would have liked to be, and they heard the deafening crack of ice as an avalanche began to hurtle down the mountain above them. Oh my god. They tried to run, but they were harnessed to their sledges and were pulled back, and they just had to throw themselves down on the snow on their faces and hope for the best. Luckily, they survived. Oh my god. I was like, oh, I had a hard day today. I had to drive from my old house to my new house two times to drop off furniture. <laughs> like, yeah, I fell down a crevasse and then an avalanche. But, you know, I survived. <laughs> Once they'd established a base in Hope Bay, 25 huskies were brought to aid them in preparing for more ambitious sledge trips than they'd attempted at Port Lacroix. I will let you know in advance, like, there is going to be a dog that dies. Okay. They, they love the dog and they don't hurt it on purpose okay. or anything. Okay. I think they're also going to kill a seal. That okay. seems like a reason. I just can't to do it to yeah. be honest. Yeah. Their first trip whilst at Hope Bay focused on the northeast of the Antarctic Peninsula, and Elka again participated to perform botanical collection. This is a much more difficult trip than the former. And the former where they fell down a crevice and got buried by an avalanche? Yes. Yeah, cool, okay. <laughs> Check <Yeah. out>. Okay. <laughs> and for the latter part of the journey, the group are in real genuine danger. Because of the immense weight of their supplies, the group relied on a system of depots, wherein they left some of their rations and other supplies in a cache that they could circle back to. They also made the foolish decision, in hindsight, to leave their skis at the depot, understanding that they would not be necessary for the terrain that they were going to cover. That does seem like banking on something you just cannot rely on. This is a mistake. Yeah, yes. yeah. Hampered by this lack of skis when they faced unexpectedly extreme weather... They made torturously slow progress and it quickly became apparent that they were going to run out of food. They found that the rations that they'd struggled to finish when they started the trip were no longer sufficient to satisfy their hunger. They also have insufficient rations for the dogs and they quickly began to become exhausted, meaning that Elka and the others have to pull the sledges. I understand this is something else that's a problem in Antarctica, that you just have to eat a huge amount Mm. for your body to keep warm. Yeah, well, I know in those, like, very northern parts of Europe where, like, people do live, which, you know, is probably not that dissimilar in weather, like, they just eat a huge amount specifically of meat. Yeah. Which I guess is a particularly hard thing to get as well when you're in Antarctica. One possible solution to this, a possible source of food, was depots that had been left by previous expeditions that they knew the rough locations of. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a bad situation. (laughs) Yes. As their situation became more dire, they decided to try and find these, and they managed to find a Swedish depot from, like, 40 years earlier. Crazy. Containing some foodstuffs like dried fruit that were still edible. I guess it's very cold. It is famously (laughs) extremely cold. Two days later, they found a bigger depot containing sugar, canned corned beef, dried beans, rice, and cases of liquor called Hesperidine de Bagley. Uh, which once thawed turned out to be a lovely orange bitters. Oh. 
Imagine how excited they must have been. Yes. Yeah, having corned beef and bitters after like trudging through the snow, chewing on a forty-year-old dried apricot. <laughs> <Yes, exactly. laughs> but just like imagining the sort of emotional depths mm. and heights that these people are going through right now. Oh yeah, like crazy. Yeah. So they fed the dogs the corned beef, yes. but it was obviously still inadequate, and two of the dogs collapsed while they were desperately trying to make progress. They ended up making the difficult decision to kill one of the dogs and feed him to the others. Elka wrote in her diary, it was a poor ending for a brave comrade and gallant old puller who had done his best to serve us long after his stomach was quite empty, and I can tell you it went against the grain for us to do it, but it was absolutely necessary to save the other dogs. Mm. I didn't want to introduce dogs and then like be like it's a fun time with dogs and not acknowledge that like this is the reality of yeah Yeah. this is the only dog that will die on this trip Mm -hmm. but there are other huskies that die and they also like kill seals and things Mm -hmm. like that and I still felt that there was a pretty high degree of just like respect for animal life at play Mm -hmm. yeah which was good yeah, you know, that, that good. I get in that situation you have to kill the dog. Yeah, I I just thought it was good. Like she mentions this dog a few more times. Mm. She mentions like going to tie up the dogs and kind of reaching for the fourteenth lead and like having a little moment. Mm. I I just kind of thought it would be very easy to only think of them as like a resource yeah. or something. Yeah. But they yeah. stay very attached to these yeah. dogs. Two days later they managed to find and kill a seal and both the dogs and the people gorged themselves on seal meat. The following day, the 10th of September, was Elka's birthday. What a birthday. As well as... How old is she? She is 34. Okay. As well as being the fifth birthday of her son. uh, And they celebrate in the tent with a seal meat stew and the remains of the orange bitters that they'd found in the depot. It's crazy to think that she's got like three kids and a A wife wife back at home. I don't know how many kids she has at this juncture. I don't know when the other two are born. (laughs) No she's, one told me this. She's got at least one kid and yeah. a wife back at home. And it's just like, I'm off to Antarctica for two years. Hope I don't die. Yeah, it is pretty crazy. They yeah. get letters back and forth, but like quite rarely. Yeah, it would be pretty sporadic, um, I assume. But like people do that. Like yeah. you have the same experience of like a sailor or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm not, especially, you know, the the war's on. Yeah. It's not like this is the only family experiencing having someone where they're just kind of gone and you hope they come back. Yeah. yeah. But it's still, you know. It's pretty wild. It is. Yeah. Well, particularly now when communication is just so much easier to think about this sort of experience of like, well, so you were two years. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. The following day, the 11th of September, they traveled the final eight miles back to their base, having been away for five weeks and were greeted with enthusiasm. Elka's wife's birthday was actually the 11th of September. So her birthday is the 10th and her wife's is the 11th and their son's is the 10th. Oh, wow. Which is adorable. That is adorable. Yeah. Get all your family birthdays over and done with. Yeah. So all of them together at the base celebrate Elka's wife's birthday along with their homecoming (laughs) that night. So that's kind of the tough part of Antarctic life, I guess. Let's talk about some of the fun stuff. Yes, good. Despite these harsh conditions they're living in, they do find time for recreation as well. They have a dartboard, a chess set, playing cards, a bunch of stuff like that that they've been provided with. They also have a gramophone, but they've only been given a few records. (laughs) Uh, So not much variety in the listening material. Do you know what the records are? No. No. No one said. Um, Disappointing. 
They would sometimes ski for fun when the conditions were good, and Elka found an article on how to build an igloo in the journal Polar Record and managed to build one. Just for fun. Just for fun. Uh, We actually have a photo taken by Elka herself of her lying in the little tunnel entrance to the igloo, (laughs) like half poking out of it. In addition to the rations that they'd brought with them, they supplemented their diets with local produce, we might say. Things like seal meat, penguin eggs, fish. I don't know what penguin eggs are like. I have some things to tell you about penguin Please eggs. Please tell me. Okay. I want to know about this. So the cook, Tom Berry, did a lot to raise their morale by finding new ways of cooking the same handful of ingredients. <laughs> uh, and Andrew Taylor recalled he could do wonderful things with penguin eggs. <laughs> Penguin eggs, as it turns out, become translucent when boiled, unlike chicken eggs, which turn white, obviously. And their yolks are quite a dark orangey red. I found a picture on the internet. I'll show you. It's the most cursed looking thing. (laughs) Elka recalls that a birthday cake that was baked for one of the men came out this like red color because of the eggs in it. Oh, wow. Wow. When spring came and the seals returned to the area and had babies, Elka recalls that the seals would just leave their pups on the ice and go off and hunt or whatever. So they would go and walk out on the ice and just pick up the baby seals and play with them, which obviously you're probably not meant to do, but you know. It's also pretty adorable. (laughs) It is pretty adorable. And then the mother would come and see them doing it and like charge at them. And they would have to run. Like this sort of angry, you know, like undulating seal movement (laughs) across the ice. They had to put the baby seal down and run. (laughs) Elka also takes great issue with the common assertion that penguins are intelligent, saying... (laughs) This is a misconception because of their upright gait and their tuxedo plumage. (laughs) They look sophisticated. They look sophisticated, but she describes them as being some of the least intelligent birds. Their eyes fishy and impersonal. Their intellect little better than insects. She concedes that they can be admired as swimmers, but that, quote, on land they are ungainly waddling monstrosities. (laughs) What did the penguin do to her? I don't know. Midwinter's day, the shortest day of the year, was prominent in the polar calendar and polar explorers treated it as a day of celebration. On the 21st of June 1945, so Midwinter's day, they had a tremendous dinner including fried fish and seal steaks and then had a musical evening. Very nice. <laughs> With, With their three, three records. records or whatever, yeah. <laughs> I guess maybe they sung as well. Yeah. Hopefully somebody brought some kind of musical instrument on this trek. Oh, no one mentioned one, actually. But I know they would put on, like, little skits and stuff. Oh, yeah. As you would. Yeah. Yeah. They also produced the Hope Bay Howler, a little newspaper chronicling their (laughs) lives. And various people were conscripted to write articles for it. Elke contributed little cartoons that she drew of comedic scenarios of life in Antarctica. And we have some of those. Oh, cool. So we can put them up on our social media. Cool. I don't know. Imagine just picking up a baby seal off the ground. Yes. That sounds fun. It does. They look so fluffy. They do. In early 1946, having spent two years in Antarctica, most of the group was relieved. A new team was sent to Antarctica to take over their work and they were sent home. They arrived back in England at the Chatham docks to functionally no welcome on the 9th of March 1946. No transportation had been organised and for those who did not live within easy travel of the dock, no accommodation. Three of them ended up staying in a deserted air raid shelter overnight. (laughs) That's horrific. Yes. They were also surprised and dismayed at the apparent indifference to the work that they'd completed. A 12-page account of the expedition was published in Polar Record in July of 1946. All other reports were filed and no plans were made to publish them. And that was that. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah, it's, like, not good, is it? No. No. Elka does publish scientific articles later, but, like, you know, she does that. Yeah. 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 I guess because they were really interested in the, like, military... Like, the mission was... Yeah, they were like, are the Argentinians there? And they were like, nah. And they were like, cool. 
So as we've seen, the expedition faced some pretty intense challenges. It had a short preparation period. Uh, it had the unexpected change in leader when James Marr became ill. There were difficult sea ice conditions in Hope Bay, meaning that they had to make their base somewhere else, and they had a shortage of supplies. Nevertheless, the expedition was successful, establishing the three bases that were Britain's first permanently occupied research stations in Antarctica, all three of which remained in operation until the 1960s. The expedition also carried out a wide array of scientific research. It did a lot of surveying work, creating maps or expanding maps that had not previously existed. Um, I also have a long list of ologies here that they did work in. So they did <laughs> meteorology, ornithology, zoology, geology, glaciology, and of course, botany. Lichenology, maybe we should say that. I guess the werewolves in Antarctica. The werewolves in Antarctica, yes. I thought they were extraterrestrial mammals. Oh, you raise a good point. I was going to say they're wear seals. Wear yeah. seals, that's pretty good. Yeah, yes. that makes sense. Yeah. Elka personally contributed to the success of the operation. She assisted with the establishment of the three bases, participated in major sledging journeys covering hundreds of miles, and documented the expedition via photography, which she developed herself. Most of the photographs of the expedition on the BAS website and in various books that have been published about Operation Tabern were taken by Elka. These are often quite candid in nature, showing the crew at their daily tasks. Uh, there's one I really like in particular of the cook Tom Berry at the stove, looking like he doesn't necessarily want to be photographed. <laughs> uh, and we have some selfies that Elka took of herself. How did he take a selfie back in the day? I think he just turned the camera around, to be honest. Yeah. But like, it's a photo of Elka and it is like attributed to Elka, so she yeah. clearly figured it out. Elka also conducted environmental experiments, such as recording snow accumulation and ground temperatures. Her main task, however, was the collection of lichens, and she discovered multiple previously unknown species, including the only true marine lichen, Vericaria serpoloides. Ooh. Are there any named after her? Yes. Cool. The medical officer Eric Back describes Elka as a pure scientist and skilled botanist who infected everyone else with her enthusiasm for lichen. Andrew Taylor, however, recorded that Elka was so thorough in her collection of specimens that other members of the expedition could bring her little of use. More than once, someone brought her a sample of some lichen they'd come across and she would voice enthusiastic thanks, but Taylor then, passing behind the house, would see her chuck it out of the window. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was nice of her to, like, pretend that they were. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I assume she's like, oh, thanks so much for getting that. And then she's like, yeah, I've got 12 of this already. Yes. <laughs> yeah, this is trash. In her botanical report in January of 1946, Elka recorded that she'd collected a total of 1,030 specimens. This process involved actually taking the sample, examining them under the microscope, provisionally classifying them, recording relevant information such as date and location of collection, and then drying and storing them in paper packets. In 1947, after returning from Antarctica, Elka and her family moved from England to Tucumán, Argentina, as oh. Elka had taken a teaching position at the university there. While in Argentina, she worked on her collections from Antarctica, and she also travelled widely in Argentina and South Brazil, researching the lichen species of those areas. In 1950, the family moved again to Canada after Elka was hired as a botanist by the National Museum of Canada, now the Canadian Museum of Nature. While at the museum, Elka collected specimens from many areas of Canada, as you might expect. <laughs> I see this is what her job is this like. This is her job, and contributed substantially to the museum's herbarium. In 1953, she moved to... They moved again after Elka was offered the directorship of the Farlow Library and Herbarium at Harvard University. Elka retained this position for nearly 20 years until she retired. 
Although this was obviously quite a prestigious position, it was also quite a difficult role to take on. It had been vacant for some time for her appointment, and she was met with a large correspondence backlog and many requests for the loan of materials. She had no assisting staff, and her wife helped her in several capacities. Wives of academics yeah. back in the day work so hard. Yeah. Wives like, of academics, I think, are still doing a yeah, lot, to be honest. Like, Probably. Less, mm. but still, I think. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. The 1960s were a difficult time for Elka personally. George Yano, who wrote one of Elka's obituaries, tells us that newspapers at the time stated that her wife incurred debts in Elka's name to the extent that Elka was forced to live in the Farlow and to subsist on potato chips and coke. Okay, that's a situation. That is a situation. I don't have these newspaper articles. I'd be very interested to read them. I don't really know why the newspaper is mentioning this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But that's what he said. Elka wrote to Andrew Taylor, with whom she maintained quite a close friendship, all this with the realisation all was not well with me brought me psychologically down to my low state. She was taken to the university's infirmary by a colleague and she stayed there for three weeks. She also consulted a lawyer at this time and received a legal separation from her wife. Mm -hmm. According to her daughter, she attempted suicide at least once. Shortly after, she was advised by a psychiatrist to speak to a specialist in New York City. The result of this was that Elka decided to transition. Now, it is obviously impossible for us to say when Elka began to understand that she was trans. One thing that might be of relevance is Elka's use of the nickname Mac prior to her transition. In his obituary of Elka, her former grad student Vernon Amagian refers to her as Mac, and in her account of Operation Tabarin, she has multiple people refer to her that way as well. She seems therefore to have been using this nickname as early as the 1940s, or at least by the time she wrote her account of this period in the 1950s, she preferred to use that name rather than her legal first or last name. Elka's middle name at birth was Mackenzie, which was her mother's maiden name, and she took it as her surname following her transition. While it's possible that her earlier use of Mac as a nickname had nothing to do with her gender, or that it started out having nothing to do with her gender, it does appear that this was a name other than her birth name that she felt comfortable with and which she incorporated into her chosen name. At some point in the 1960s, Elka joined a theatre troupe in Cambridge. Oh. Um, like Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yeah, To yeah, be yeah. clear, not, yeah. <laughs> I was just <laughs> She didn't just, like, abandon her job at Harvard and go to be an amateur <laughs> player in Cambridge. Ran away to join the circus. <laughs> yes. It was run by Lawrence Senelik, professor of drama at Tufts University. Her final performance with them was in 1969, in Anything You Say Will Be Twisted, and Elka asked to be credited by her chosen name. She shortly after asked if she could attend Senelik's Oktoberfest party in women's clothing. Senelik described this in an email to Sabrina Imbler as her coming out in an environment she assumed would be welcoming. He told her that of course she could. Senelik's book The Changing Room, Sex, Drag and Theatre is dedicated to Elka, reading, This book is dedicated to Elka McKenzie, whose transformation taught many who enjoyed transvestism on stage to appreciate transsexualism in life. So when you say that she was credited in the program by her chosen name, was that like the first time we have her using that name? So I just like don't have a lot of details about her life and a lot of the sort of timeline of stuff that happens is a bit unclear. Mm -hmm. That is the first time, if I am remembering correctly, that I concretely have a date for her using that name. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yano heard rumours of Elka's poor health at this time and met with her to see if it was because of the rigours of her field research. He wrote in her obituary... He then confided that he was undergoing a gender change, which involved a legal change in name, a new social security number, and a new passport, all to be concluded by 1971. 
He assured me that there would be no interruption to the research. I did ask Mac if he might have second thoughts on what would be an irreversible decision. He answered with a firm no, adding that there were times when he had contemplated suicide. Yano says that he didn't fully understand what he calls Elka's bizarre situation, but that he considered the matter closed when he learned that the university was granting Elka a sabbatical leave in 1971, followed by a total disability retirement, and he further states that Elka lost interest in botany over the next six years. As far as I can tell, this seems to pretty radically misrepresent Elka's retirement from the Farlow and her late career. Okay. 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 First of all, it's clear that Elka was forced to leave the job that she'd held for nearly 20 years. Lawrence Senelik, in correspondence with Sabrina Imbler, remembers hearing that her department was appalled to hear of her transition and offered her early retirement. He said, I admired her courage in deciding to live as she wanted at an advanced age, jeopardizing a secure position. Elka's daughter also remembered that she was actively encouraged to resign. I wonder if George misrepresented whatever reason or if Elka represented it as a situation where she had more agency than she actually did to George. Yeah, I mean, who's to say? I don't know that Yano, George, if you like, got (laughs) this impression from her or if he just, like, he worked with her. They were colleagues. Oh, yeah. um, Or if he just, like, heard that that had happened. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there is a lot about this that, like, we don't really know. Mm -hmm. I've pieced together, like, several facts from probably unreliable sources. Yeah. Um, So... You know, wherever he's got this from, I think he's wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It is also clear that Elka did remain interested in botany and would have, in my opinion, continued working in her field indefinitely if she had been able to do so. Mm-hmm. Yano himself recalls that she told him that her transition would not disrupt her research, clearly mm. implying that she planned to continue it. Yeah. Elke also continued to publish papers after her transition. Yano himself includes a list of her publications with her obituary and gives us 11 titles that were published between 1972 and 1978. So he's like, oh yes, she lost interest in botany. Here are all the things that she did that were about (laughs) botany in that time. I think George needs to supply his critical thinking skills a little (laughs) little bit. I mean, George is writing this for a lichenological journal. Mm. You know, obviously that is going to color this like we don't really know what george thought of this this is just what he's written in that setting yeah yeah Yeah. he may have been like this was a huge deal but i can't be like and then harvard fired her the bastards you know (laughs) yeah 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 yeah, yeah, that's true all of these papers published between 72 and 78 are published under her dead name uh but in some of them she acknowledges herself by her chosen name oh for example, in 1972, Elka published the study Stereocolon arenarium, a hitherto overlooked boreal arctic lichen, and wrote in the acknowledgments, Grateful acknowledgement is due to Miss Elka McKenzie for technical and bibliographic assistance in the preparation of this paper. <laughs> That's adorable. Yeah, <laughs> that is kind of very sweet somehow. I'm unfortunately also not able to really confirm why Elka continued to publish these papers under her dead name. It's possible that after being forced out of her job, she chose not to come out further in her field because of the possibility of further rejection. Mm. It is also possible that these journals refused to publish her work under her new name. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Elka did announce her transition more widely to her community in the October 1976 issue of the International Lichenological Newsletter. Oh, okay. Saying that she should now be addressed as Dr. Elka McKenzie. Okay. And I assume that because of this, being referred to by this name would have been a preference earlier in the 70s if she had felt that it was an option. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I can see why, especially if she's lost her job at Harvard and wants to keep publishing, she's kind Mm. of aiming for some kind of visible continuity between her Mm. previous work and her current work. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, yeah. I can see why that might sort of motivate using the dead name. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Like there are definitely yeah. are very plausible reasons, but we we just don't know. Yeah. You know, pinpoint exactly which one, unfortunately. Mm. After losing her job, according to Yano, Elka translated German botanical textbooks and with the income bought land in Costa Rica and had an A-frame bungalow built on it. Nice. nice. Yeah. I know your other dream, as well as going to Antarctica, your new dream is to live in an A-frame house. Yes, so. A for Antarctica. <laughs> Elka moved to Costa Rica in 1976 and occasionally returned to Cambridge, including to attend a reunion of Harvard employees. I would love to know how that went. I have no idea. Her daughter visited her in Costa Rica and they lived together when she returned to Cambridge in 1980 due to political unrest. In Cambridge, Elka started woodworking and making furniture. Oh, cool. After visiting the Peabody Maritime Museum in Salem, she became interested in whalers' sea chests and their knotwork handles, and she began making replicas. That's She's a cool like, retirement hobby. She's yeah. a very cool lady. She is a very cool lady. By 1983, Elka was unwell, suffering from weakness in her legs and frequent falls. She was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, or ALS. She wrote to Taylor on the 30th of December 1985, a final letter, writing, My dear friend, I shall always remember the good times we had together in Antarctica. And she signed it Mac with Elka McKenzie in brackets. That's nice. Elka passed away in the Massachusetts Respiratory Hospital on the 27th of January 1919. As we have seen, Elka contributed massively to her field. Yano describes her as having few peers in lichenology and as being a keen collector, sharp observer of lichen habitat, a careful and thorough, albeit somewhat conservative, systematist, and a scholar of historical materials. She worked with the leading lichenologists of the countries in which she travelled and lived, and she provided the first modern Spanish language treatment of South American lichen flora, encouraging further work by South American scientists. Oh, cool. Wait, she spoke Spanish? Yep. I mean, I guess she did live in Argentina and Costa Rica. Oh, yeah, she did too. And she spoke German. Any other languages she's keeping up her sleeve? Ah, probably. Probably Latin. (laughs) She spoke several languages. I don't know. I don't have a list. Okay. Yeah. Her work on Antarctic lichen was still regarded as reliable at the time of her death, and she was an enormous contributor to our understanding of the genus Stereocolon. Elka is the namesake of five species of lichen and one genus of green algae. So I was thinking about being the namesake of five species. Like, by the time you get to the fifth species, you're, like, searching for new permutations of the name. Yeah. So I'm thinking of it a unique scientific name. <laughs> yeah. Elka's specimens that are still held in the Philo collections are still consulted by researchers, and her Antarctic specimens have gained new value as climate change warms Antarctica. Mm. On a personal level, Elka seems to have been universally liked and respected. Andrew Taylor, in his account of Operation Tabarin, praised her highly, noting her sincerity, diligence, and elfish sense of (laughs) humour, describing her as one of the most unselfish characters I have ever met, and saying that it was a privilege to know her. Vernon Amagian described Elka as the most considerate, patient, helpful, and unselfish advisor that a graduate student could have wished for, and said that she taught him by her own example the meaning of scholarship. She just sounds like such a good person. Sounds like she was very good at her job. That's true too, yeah. I wanted to end by talking a little bit about how my sources discussed Elka's gender. All of the sources that I used dead name and misgender Elka throughout. Andrew Taylor, one of her close friends, does this consistently in his obituary of her. Amagian and Yano both do so for the majority of their obituaries, but acknowledge that she was a trans woman and refer to her briefly by her chosen name and pronouns when referring directly to her transition. Haddlesey and Lewis Smith, the editors of her account of Operation Tabarin, published as recently as 2018, also follow this method in their introduction. That 
obviously is very frustrating for us now as historians, but must have been horrible for her. And I hope that like there were people in her life, like it sounds like, for example, Lawrence from her theatre troupe, who were more, you know, yeah. supportive of her. Yeah. And like she lived with her daughter, so hopefully like her daughter and her had a yeah. good relationship. Yeah. Her daughter yeah. might still be alive, to be honest, I'm not sure. She was yeah. alive in 2017. Okay. Because okay. she had a phone call with Huddlesey and Lewis Smith that I've cited. <laughs> <laughs> The sole exception to this is Sabrina Imbler's 2020 article, The Unsung Heroine of Lycanology, in which they say almost all of Mackenzie's legacy exists under her former name. I chose not to share it here because I do not know Mackenzie's relationship to her former name and she has no way of consenting to its inclusion in this story. I mean, she did say from henceforth I will be known as Dr. Elka Mackenzie, so we will do accordingly that seems fair yeah Um, she asked but yeah i i found emma's article to be very good if you want to read more about this obviously like go there first um they're a very good writer in addition to it being informative and i just wanted to kind of demonstrate that like it's as simple as that none of these other sources give a reason for their choice and in lieu of dissecting the possible motivations and understandings of transness behind it as we've often done i wanted to repeat the notice published in the october 1976 issue of the international lichenological newsletter that she should now be addressed as dr elka mckenzie yeah i mean that's it that's it yeah often our discussions of historical trans people have centered on figures whose identity is to some degree unclear and whose own voices have been lost but this isn't the case with elka We have, in our own words, unambiguous confirmation of what name she would like to be called, and there seems to be no point in having a debate about it. Yeah. Yeah, that seems straightforward. It's just disappointing that, like, these other people, like, as recently as you said, like, 2018, Mm. have... It sounds like, and obviously I haven't read these books and I can't dissect their motivations, just haven't really bothered to think about it. In their piece on Elka... Imbler writes, it is always hard to describe a person's experience from the scientific record, from vast notes on collections, obscure descriptions of even more obscure fungi. This task becomes near impossible when the best recorded parts of a person's life may not accurately reflect their identity. But Elka McKenzie's fleeting moments of self-citation, writing herself into her own authorship even in a footnote, illuminate the hopes of someone who, against ease and tradition, did not wish to separate her identity from her research. And it really made me think, you know, that like in the 1970s, she was presented with this choice that she didn't want to make between her career and living openly as a woman. Yeah. Yeah. And this way of talking about her 20 years later after she died in these obituaries that, as we've seen, lavishly praise her, it seems to me that it's kind of a continuation of that choice. You know, they lavishly praise her, but they continue to minimize her womanhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're 30 years on from that. And we have the opportunity to do away with this choice once and for all, and to acknowledge Elka as both a skilled lichenologist and as a woman without qualification. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. My name is Eli. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more of our episodes, you can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever good podcasts are found. If you listen to us on Spotify, we would really appreciate it if you left a little rating out of five stars. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, we would really appreciate if you would leave us a little rating out of five stars and then also a review. It really helps us to find new listeners. And if you do it, we might read out your review here. This episode's review is from H.R. Jones, who is from the United States of America, and they write, delighted to find a fellow queer history podcast. Oh. Their review reads, always delighted to discover another queer history podcast, not only for my own enjoyment, but so I can recommend it to the listeners of my own show. Oh, what's their show? We really need better discoverability 
responsibility for our genre because it seems I'm always running into shows that have been airing for years before I discover them. <laughs> um, please get in touch and let us know what your show is. I would love to give it a listen. Thank you for leaving us a review. If you want to find more Queer as Fact, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. You can also email us at queerasfact at gmail.com. Uh, we also have a post office box, which you actually probably shouldn't send things to because we are going to have to move that because we're moving house. <laughs> so hold tight. <laughs> and we will tell you the new details of that soon. It does still exist, but like it's, yeah. it's going to move. If you would like to support us financially, you can buy our merch on Redbubble or you can support us over on Patreon where we have a variety of perks for our patrons if you would like to find all of that information collected together in one place you can find our website at queerasfact.com we'll be back on the 1st of april when jace will be telling us about the 1961 british neo-noir film victim thank you very much for listening and we'll see you then 